Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, October the 15th, 2023. We're back to one of our perennial Keenon subjects, capitalism. Big subject, big conversation, big thinkers. One of the biggest thinkers, of course, on capitalism was a certain Vladimir Ilyich Lenin in uh, 1917, actually 16, published in 17. He wrote a book called Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. Of course, he was no great fan of capitalism, but I guess he had a sneaking regard for it in the sense that he saw imperialism as representing both its strength and ultimately its weakness. It's still a book that actually does pretty well. When you go on Amazon, gets lots of ratings, uh, almost 1,500 ratings uh, on Amazon, which is quite an achievement. It shows that the issues of capitalism in terms of its highest stage are rather pertinent still. And so it's no great surprise that we now have another book on the highest stage of capitalism. But rather than imperialism, uh, care has been substituted. Care, the highest stage of capitalism, is a new book out by Premila Nadison. Uh, she's a distinguished American historian. She teaches at Barnard College in, uh, um, in uh, Uptown New York, a wonderful college. Um, Premila, when you came up with care as the highest stage of capitalism, I assume uh, you had a nod and a wink to good old Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, did you, in terms of his book on the highest stage of capitalism? Yes, I did. And thank you very much for having me on, Andrew. Um, yes, of course, it's, it's a nod and it's a wink. I don't presume to develop a theory quite as grand as what Vladimir uh, developed for us. But I think what I was trying to do was to point to certain uh, transitions in capitalism that I have noticed uh, in the past several decades. And that is to really think about what is the basis, especially of American capitalism right now. This is not a global book. It's not a global history. I'm really focused on the United States. But I've noticed several things. One is the number of uh, workers who are in the care industry as opposed to the manufacturing industry. We in fact have the vast majority of our workers are not doing manufacturing work. It's something like 8% of U.S. workers are in manufacturing. Something like 15% are doing the work of what we would call care or social reproduction. That is there in fields like healthcare and education. Right. So I think that's one indication. That's a fairly broad definition of care that you would include education and healthcare. That's absolutely right. Because I think when we talk about care, what we're talking about is the work that is necessary that is necessary to sustain and maintain and reproduce human life. Marxist feminists have, refer, have referred to this as the labor of social reproduction. A lot of this was work that originally took place in the home, the teaching of children, health care, food production, um, uh, birthing, childcare, all of that is work that did take place in the home and has been slowly commodified over the past 200 years or so. 
And much of this takes up a good portion of our economy. If we look, for example, at the top uh, Fortune 500 companies, four of the top 10 companies are in this area of what I would call social reproduction or care. And so I think it's important for us to, to pause and think about what this means for American capitalism, for where American capitalism is, um, how people are making profit today, if the manufacturing sector has shrunk, and if in fact care or social reproduction is a booming and growing and more important part of the US economy, I think it's important for us to just stop and think about what that means for us as workers and for us as people who are constantly striving to develop forms of care and community to care for one another. Care is, of course, uh, the heart of your book, The Highest Stage of Capitalism. There's another C word, contradiction. Premier, again, as someone obviously quite steeped in socialist or Marxist writing and theory, that that's not a, an unfamiliar word to you. Uh, for Lenin, imperialism was the highest stage of capitalism that would result in its contradiction and destruction. Do you see care as being, if not a final stage, a, a late stage capitalism, certainly a contradiction in the difference between the ideology of care, I mean, obviously no one's against the idea of caring for someone else, and its reality, its exploitative nature. It's hard to know, and I am not going to predict what is gonna happen in the next 50, 100 years. But what I do know is that we have seen a care crisis in this country for a very long time. It's been very evident for middle-class Americans in the past three to four decades. I think there has been a crisis of care among other communities, poor and working-class communities for much longer. And there are a number of Marxist feminist theorists, Nancy Frazier is one of those who, argue that it, who argues that in fact, this crisis of care will undoubtedly lead to a crisis of capitalism because without the care work necessary, without the care of families and communities, there would be no workers produced for capitalism. And I think what we've actually seen, and this was very clear during the pandemic, is that corporations are finding ways to profit off of the care crisis. So when families do not have access to care, when the public school system is inadequate to meet their needs, um, they find alternative private sector, in most cases, ways of uh, alleviating this, this care crisis. Child care, health care, all of this is a growing part of the economy precisely because of the care crisis. So whether or not this is sustainable, I don't know. But I think at the very moment, companies across the world, actually, are really looking to fill this care gap and to do so in a way that makes uh, quite a bit of profit for them. Premila, some people will be watching, listening to this and scratching their heads and thinking, what does this woman have against the idea of a care economy? After all, if a woman needs to work, uh, the care economy enables her to pay for help to look after her children or her elderly parents. What's wrong with care? Doesn't it free us? from the drudgery, some people might argue, of, of domestic labor um, and enable people to work 
and indeed even enjoy themselves. I'm not opposed to care. I think care is a good thing. I think we need to care better and care more. And I think we need better access to care. I think there are several things. One is what we're seeing now with the care economy is actually a system of profit. It is not designed to benefit the people who need the care. It is designed to make money for investors and for corporations. So I think that's one thing. So I think we have to ask ourselves, do we want basic human needs such as childcare, healthcare, education to be sources of profit? Do we want people to make money off of this? That's one thing I would ask. And then I guess the other thing that's important is what about people who would actually like to take care of their own children, who don't want to leave the home, hire somebody to take care of their kids and leave the home and join the workforce, but in fact, they want to be able to take care of their own children. And the problem is, and I think where the care economy has really flourished, is with the dismantling of the public sector. We know there's been a disinvestment in public schools. We know that the welfare system has been dismantled. We know that there has been an underinvestment in public health care. But in fact, so many of these dollars are in fact going to the private sector. So I would say that if in fact we had a robust public sector that didn't that did meet the needs of people who wanted child care, who wanted quality education for their children if we had access to a healthcare system that truly met the needs of ordinary people provided basic healthcare, then absolutely people should have the choice to go out and enjoy themselves in the workforce or leisure or whatever else. But the question for me is really about profit. And do we want profit to be made out of people's needs? We are talking with Premila Nadison, uh, Barnard, college and the author of an interesting intriguing controversial perhaps new book care the highest stage of capitalism uh Premla, how does this play out in terms of shall we say the ideology of liberalism um how is it affecting what it means to be a liberal there are many people on the left who are, who are critical of, of liberals and of liberal ideology. Do you think that your economy, your economics, your capitalism as care has infected liberalism? Can you explain what you mean by liberalism? Individual rights, uh, the, 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 the classic form of representative, the, the, the classic ideology underlining uh, American democracy, the notion that within the free market, we can care about one another, we should care. Um, and that caring about someone else doesn't necessarily mean not being able to compete with them in the market. Feelings as opposed to economics. I think that, yes, it's a challenge to liberalism because I think we have a responsibility to other human beings. Bottom line, I believe we need to create a society where people are cared for. The free, if our measure of a good society is one where people are basically taken care of, where people are not dying in the streets, where people are not unhoused, where people are not sick, 
and have no access to healthcare. If that's if if that's what we want, then the free market works. But if in fact we believe that we should live in a society where everyone has a home, regardless of whether or not they're able to work, that everyone has access to healthcare that is affordable, that everyone has access to education, quality education, if that is our measure of a good society, whether you're Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative or radical, and that is my measure, then the free market doesn't work. It does, it simply does not. We have seen that over and over and over again. We have something like 40 million Americans who are living in extreme poverty today. We have something like one and a half million Americans who are living in what is known as extreme poverty. That is less than $2 a day. So I don't believe, if, if, if we look at those statistics, for me, the free market has failed us. And so I think we need to, we must institute some alternatives to think about how to provide basic needs for people. And I think creating a caring economy, if we want to call it that, is about giving the resources to people who need it so they can provide these basic things for themselves and their families. Premier, I take your point on increasing inequality and poverty in America. We've done a lot of shows on that, but I, I don't entirely understand how that's connected with the care economy or, or care economics. People living on, what's the connection between the millions of Americans living on $2 or less and care as the highest stage of capitalism? Well, I think what has happened is that there has been a push to create a more caring economy. And we have seen, for example, in the private sector, we've seen companies like Google and Amazon that have provided a lot of very lovely benefits for their employees, uh, extended time off. Uh, I think Google even has something called child bonding bucks to help employees pay for diapers and formula. Now, this doesn't actually go to all Google employees. It only goes to full-time permanent employees. What is it? Child? What do you call it? They're, they're called child bonding bucks. Child binding? Bonding. Ah, because my wife works for Google. I have to ask her about those mm -hmm. child bonding. She never mentioned it. Can you, do they also provide husband bonding bucks? Do you think? <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> um, but most of Google employees don't get that because those benefits only go to full-time permanent employees. It does not go to the temporary employees or to contract employees. We've also seen a push in the public sector for a caring economy. Okay, so things like the child tax credit, the Family Medical Leave Act, there's things like the Earned Income Tax Credit. All of these programs are dependent upon somebody being employed. They are tax credits, which means you need to earn money in order to get the credit. So there's a lot of people who are left out of these tax credits, people who are undocumented, people who are outside of the labor market. Um, for whatever reason, they might not be able to work. They might have caring responsibilities that do not allow them to work. So there's a lot of people who are excluded from, I would say, the care economy. And 
so so what I've seen is a growing two-tier in the care economy. That is, there are the people who are supported by these programs and people who are not. And a more universal program, such as a welfare system that aids people or assists people regardless of whether or not they work, or even better, something like a guaranteed annual income that would go to everybody who needs assistance, is in fact, I think, a better way to go. Because what uh, the, the various programs that currently exist, programs like uh, Google uh, uh, Benefits, programs like these tax credits, are a part of the care economy in that they are dependent upon employment and they go to people who are employed. I, I, okay. I take your point, and mm -hmm. although earlier this week we did a show with Chris Bosso, a Boston-based academic on food stamps, you don't have to be employed to qualify for food stamps, do you? No, but food stamps have been cut, and states are running out of money for food stamps, right? I mean, the, the need for food stamps far outweighs uh, the, the availability. And so... The reason that poverty and extreme poverty is important is because that is an indication of the people who are not getting the benefits they need, who are not getting the assistance they need. So I think we have to look at, I mean, the key question I'm asking is who is left out? Who is left out of the care economy? Who cannot go to the marketplace? Who does not benefit from the tax credits? Who is not working at an employer who gives them the benefits, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to think about people who cannot participate in the care economy, as well as those people who are quite frankly participating, but paying way too much. We are talking with Premila Nadison, the author of Care, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, wonderfully titled new book. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor for this show. Uh, they're caring for me, at least. Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, going to run a short ad, and then we'll be back with Premila to talk more about care economics or perhaps the lack of economics of care. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens, Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. Strongly encouraged. Excellent new publication. Uh, as I said, we are talking with Premila uh, Nadison, the author of Care, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. I really think you're onto something, uh, Premila, here. Um, in a way, perhaps, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth. Are you suggesting that we need to normalize care? I remember in COVID, we, we fetishized the care workers. We turned them into dramatic heroes when you've written about this. All these were, were people who weren't, these were people who weren't very well paid, who had to work really hard. Is the other side of the coin of, of care as the highest stage of capitalism, a fetishization of care workers in times of crisis like in COVID? Absolutely. I think that um, I would say it's more than a fetishization. I think, in fact, what happened during COVID 
is a, a recognition of what care workers and essential workers were doing. Um, people wanted to place value on them. We were out at seven o'clock in the evening, banging the pots and pans. But very often that value or that recognition that was attributed to them was because of the service that they provide. So that is, these workers were considered important to the degree that they took care of other more privileged people. Their well-being was either not mentioned or it was dependent on the work they did. So the logic behind that is if we need them, then and if they care for us, then they should be, then they should be taken care of. I think, you know, that's wonderful. We should take care of care workers. But I think we need a more expansive frame. I think we should be concerned about all people, whether they provide a service or not, whether they take care of us or not. Not everybody can be in the labor market. And so I think fundamentally, if we want a just society, if we want a caring society, we need to ensure that everyone is included in that uh, vision of what that caring society would look like. Are you, uh, and, I, and I often ask people, progressives who come on the show about this, are you going all Denmark on me, Premela, and suggesting that we need to become like Denmark or some other social democracy in Northern Europe? I don't know. Um, well, I mean, you must have models for societies that work maybe historically are you looking back nostalgically at the new deal are you looking at denmark or sweden or norway or estonia i i think it's complicated i wish there were a simple answer to this the united states is a very diverse society it's not denmark and it is not sweden we have huge racial divides in this country we have a large number of immigrants in this country uh, it's not a society where people, I, I think the questions of race and uh, ethnicity and nationality have been a real divider in social programs. And that was true in the 1930s uh, and in the 1960s. So I don't look back nostalgically on those periods. And in fact, when we look at investment in public programs today, what we see is still a fleecing of public dollars. So many uh, state programs are actually outsourced to private corporations. Maximus, for example, mm -hmm. is one of the corporations that has made the most money off of providing healthcare, off of managing the Affordable Care Act for states. Uh, they also manage the child health insurance programs in many states, the welfare to work programs. And so what we are seeing, again, is public dollars going into the hands of private corporations. I think we need a new model. I think we need a system of guaranteed health care, not guaranteed health insurance. I think we need a system of public daycare and public schools, not tax credits for childcare that parents can then use in the private marketplace. Market, market. Again, I think that these are basic human needs. I, I think we've seen what uh, the market has done to housing. Housing is unaffordable in most cities in this country right now. Um, and so what can we do to take the profit motive and to take capital accumulation out of things like housing, healthcare, education, um, and to ensure that people have the basics that, that they need in order to live? 
you know, I was in, in terms of how to move forward, I was really heartened by some of what I saw during the pandemic. Um, there were mutual aid campaigns. Um, in, in my neighborhood, we had a friendly fridge. There were lots of friendly fridges around the country, I know, where where people would, would stock it with food and the people who needed it would, would go and get what they needed. Uh, there was a really amazing capacity uh, of people to care for one another, of people helping people. Um, I work with a group in New York City called the Damayant Migrant Workers Association, and they handed out care packages, a group of mostly Filipino workers uh, that helps rescue people from, um, from labor trafficking situations. And they um, handed out care packages. They put people up in homes who had been kicked out when they lost their jobs. And so I think there's a, a tremendous amount of capacity in people to reach out and to care for others. And I think we need to marshal that. I mean, if that in itself is not alone, it's a, is, is, is not enough alone. We, we, we need something else. We need some kind of state system to support people. Um, but I think ultimately individuals, their families and their communities understand best how to provide care. And so I don't know if um, state managed programs or federally managed programs are the best way to do it, but I do think that people need the resources in their, in their communities in order to um, find ways to care for themselves and for each other. I know you, you, you mentioned uh, Filipino communities, you've written about the role of indigenous, indigenous traditions and other alternative histories. Do we need to look at other models aside from the Anglo-American liberal capitalist one in terms of property if we're to figure out um, a more just society? Absolutely. I mean, I think we, my book is, I mean, I, I wrote this book to think about how we can create a more just caring society. And I am beginning from a place of asking questions, right? Why is it that childcare is profit oriented? Why is it that private property exists in this country? Why is it that water is privatized and we pay for water? So I think that I don't have the solutions. I, I really don't, I, I, I wish I did. But I think we, if we begin to question some of the conventional wisdom about how our society is organized today, it will move us to a better place of trying to find those solutions, of trying to figure out what, what might work. Um, you know, I, I'm, I was also very heartened during the pandemic about the labor organizing that was taking place. Um, and we've seen a real resurgence even post-pandemic of workers who are organizing, the, 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 um, uh, the UAW workers now, the Amazon workers, of course, but even prior to that, nurses and teachers. Um, and so I, I wonder, you know, in, in, in what ways does the care economy sort of offer other and new opportunities for people to organize, not just as workers, but as people in need, the welfare rights movement in the 1960s was, I think, one of the most powerful movements, not because it achieved a lot, because, but because it was a group of women who mobilized around their right to care for their own children. 
And so I have a question about what can we learn from that movement about how to construct a new kind of society, one where parents, if they don't want to, don't have to leave their children at home and go out to work. Raising children is one of the most important contributions that any human Yeah, maybe the state should borrow uh, Google's language and talk about child bonding bucks for everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. In all seriousness, um, you include education in your caring economy. You say that we need to transform it from the private to the public realm, and yet you're clearly someone with very much of a, a public perspective on all this, a very critical and interesting perspective, and yet you teach at Barnard, one of the most expensive and exclusive colleges in America. Can one exist inside the system and yet recognize all the problems? And some people might say, well, it's only with academics like you at places like Barnard that we can get out of this crisis. Yeah, and that's a fair question. I think we're all inside the system. Wherever we are, we're all inside the system. We're all complicit. And I take full ownership of that. I've taught at Barnard for the past 10 years. Prior to that, I taught at Queens College, the City University of New York, for 15 years. Most of my life was spent in public schools. Um, I grew up in a working class family. My mother worked in a factory for 15, for most of my life, actually. So, um, you know, I, I, but I do think we're all complicit. We're all complicit in the economy. We're all in, in, embedded in it. And so I think it, it, we can see how we participate in it, but we have to work towards change. This is not about uh, any individual, and it's not about any individual choices that any of us make. It really is about how we can mobilize collectively to make a bigger change. Um, and I work very closely with grassroots organizations, the labor trafficking organization I mentioned is just one. I work with groups in Mississippi. And I think the best we can do is to listen and learn and to think collectively and creatively. Well, finally, uh, Premier, what about politics? I mean, it's all very well self-organization and grassroots organizations, but change, as Lenin understood, often comes from above. Uh, are there politicians in America today who you admire, who you think can reinvent this country, make it more just, uh, acknowledge some of the arguments you make in care? Bernie Sanders, for example, or AOC? Yeah, I think there's definitely a group of politicians on the left who would be willing to listen and to hear and to, and have been already been trying to think creatively about care. The Care for All agenda is one of those. And so part of what I'm trying to do is to get people even on that level to stop and to think about what it means to call for an expanded uh, welfare budget or an expanded budget for healthcare in the absence of checks and balances about how that money is spent. So I think, you know, it's, it's a step-by-step process. I think we're going to get there, but I think we have to be very cognizant of where we are, of the kinds of decisions we're making. Um, about who's benefiting, who's profiting. Uh, and yeah, I think it's, you know, again, I don't have all the answers. I do hope people um, think through um, how to create a system that truly does care for the people who need it most and not just the people who uh, 
have the loudest voices. Real care then, Pramila, in the care economy. Yes, real care in the care economy.